There are a few things that are as discouraging as suffering. And many of us know what it's like to go through a period of time in our lives where we're hurting. All of you guys, at some point, whether it's through guilt, you're suffering because of the sin that you've committed, the bad things you've done, and you're suffering on the inside, or maybe it's a circumstance. Somebody in your family is hurting. Somebody is sick. Or maybe it's what people have done to you. Someone has sinned against you, has done something wrong. All kinds of different reasons why we suffer in this life. And the problem with that is that as you suffer, oftentimes you feel like there is no hope. It's oftentimes when the people of God are suffering that we begin to ask the question, why does God allow us to suffer? And if God allows us to suffer, could it be the case that God does not care? Maybe he's abandoned us. And the longer a period of time it is that you suffer, the, the more and more that you feel like there is no hope. I think about five years ago in 2010 in Chile, there were a, a group of coal miners who were stuck underground for 69 days. I got to watch them get rescued on live television. But they were buried deep beneath the earth. 33 people were trapped 2,300 feet underground and almost three miles away from the mine's entrance. And so they were underground for 69 days. Imagine what that's like to feel after not just a month, but two months and more than that of being trapped underground, wondering if there will ever be a time when you see the sun again. And suffering can feel like that. It can feel like there is no way out and all you are left to do is to suffer for the rest of your days. It could be a hard thing. But imagine you received a letter. In the midst of all your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, let's say that you received a letter. And it said on the address, address to current resident. So it didn't have your name, but it said current resident. And then you found out as you opened the letter that it was about car insurance. How many of you pay for your car insurance? Probably none of you, right? Teenagers at least. Frankie's like, I do. Most of you probably don't pay for car insurance. So what would you do with that letter? Would you treasure it? Would you read it five times? Treat it like a love letter? You smell it? Smell the perfume of whoever sealed that envelope and mailed it to you? You probably wouldn't do that. You would probably take that letter and toss it. Why? Because you feel like that letter has nothing to do with you. And so you cast it aside. It has no relevance to my life. Oftentimes, the books and stories we find most inspiring are the ones we feel like we connect with. Isn't it true? Especially as a young child, didn't you fantasize about what it's like to be Superman, Batman, to be in your Batcave, and you would daydream. And the things that you would think about oftentimes is, is that you were the superhero of your world. Or maybe, not even that, I mean, think about the Star Wars movie. I think what makes those things so inspiring to us is that even though we can't relate with the lightsabers, even though we can't relate with the aliens and, and going out into outer space, all of us can relate with the concepts of good versus evil and wants to be the hero of our story. And so many children and many adults today still dress up, act as if they are one of the characters in the story. 
And even if you do that, even if you're so wrapped up to the story and you imagine what it's like to be on the dark side, or you imagine what it's like to be a rebel, and you, you fantasize of what it's like to be a character in the story, at some point you have to grow up and know and admit that that is not reality. At some point you have to admit that that is playtime and now it's time to live your life in the real world. However, it is not that way with the Bible. You see, with the Bible, it's a story. Yes, but it's more than a story. In fact, the divine author, when he was writing it, had you in mind. So although in Star Wars and in everything else, we read these stories and it's immature for us to act them out, actually, in the Bible, because God had you in mind, you are supposed to, instead of transform yourself into a character inside the story, you're supposed to have your character transformed so that you come out and live out your role in this life. So as a Christian, your job is to receive a letter and recognize that this is a living letter that's written to me. And oftentimes when we miss out on the point of the Bible is when we forget that this is God's letter to us. And we are, just as these people are in 1 Peter, the people that this was originally uh, written to and addressed to, we too can act out the things that were here, placed here, to encourage a discouraged church. For people that are suffering, here's a letter that's living, that's powerful, that gives us hope for sufferers. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says about the scriptures that for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Think about that. It says right there in that verse in Romans 15, 4, that the reason why the Bible was written, these things were written for our learning so that we would have steadfastness steadfastness, patience, in other words, so that when you're in that trial, when you're suffering, you can keep going. You'd have comfort so that when you're discouraged, it brings you encouragement. And you also have hope when you are in the midst of despair. So thinking about those things, we have to ask the question before we read this letter, who is the author of this particular book? Who is he writing to? And what was its purpose? Well, the book of 1 Peter was written, obviously, by Peter the Apostle. It says that right there in the first verse, that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is it written to? It is written to mixed Jewish converts that were dispersed in Asia Minor. What was its purpose? Well, later on in chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. That's a summary verse right there. In other words, we suffer, and when we suffer, we do the right thing regardless because we're committing ourselves to a faithful creator. And so because we commit ourselves and we're doing good, we entrust the person who made us. So what's really interesting about this, that Peter wrote this book, is that Peter was the very person who denied that suffering was a part of God's plan. It's ironic, isn't it? Think about when Peter was talking to Jesus. And Jesus, Matthew chapter 16, he said he must 
go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And what did Peter say? Do you remember? He said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. It actually says that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. You want to be one of those people rebuking Jesus? Jesus is saying, I must suffer. And Peter's like, oh, man. Pulls him aside, says, we have to talk. Sends him a text message. We need to talk today. And then Jesus is like, oh, gosh, one of these conversations. Pulls him aside, says, Jesus, I know you're like this suffering thing. Like, that, that can't happen. Far be it from you, Lord, that these things would happen to you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Like, if there's anything that you could say that's pretty messed up, that's, that's got to be it. Peter, he didn't believe in suffering. When things got hard, what happened? He died a martyr? No, he denied Jesus. So what's really, really interesting about this, the fact that Peter's writing a book about suffering is that God taught Peter the true meaning of suffering. Did you know? It's possible that the very weakness you have could potentially, if you, get, if you let God work in your heart, work in the crevices of your life, your deficiencies, then God can turn that into a story of how he's redeemed you. When you feel like you're deficient and you're weak, that's an opportunity for God to show himself strong on your behalf. And just like Peter didn't believe in suffering and he was a coward, he was turned into someone who was as bold as a lion. So this was written to, as we talked before, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Electricorn, Phrenology, God the Father, and whatever. These are pilgrims, Christians that were scattered in Asia Minor. These Christians during this time, as they were scattered, Asia Minor, these, these major uh, Roman provinces that are listed were among this Asian trade route. And so Christians in the early days, as you know, were being persecuted for their faith. It wasn't a popular thing to be a Christian. And so because of that, churches were growing. People were sharing the gospel. People were getting saved in all these different churches and all these different areas. But as they were scattered abroad, they were each individually persecuted and began to become discouraged. One of the natural things about Christianity is that we're all, all going to be spreading the gospel and as we spread it and people get saved sometimes you feel alone because you are dispersed but you know Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth we are to preserve the earth we are to flavor the earth we are to be the salt of the entire world and in order for salt to be effective it needs to scatter just like you don't pour your salt on one concentrated point on your food Salt needs to scatter over the entire object in order to maximize its effect. And so Christianity spread, so did the church, and it was so easy for them to become discouraged. You too, as, you know, you're in youth group, eventually you're going to have to graduate, and eventually your friends are going to have to leave, or you're going to have to leave. And so as your friends, some of you had friends in the, the last senior class, they were dispersed, and now they're in college, and now it feels like I don't have any friends. Or you come here, and you feel like you don't know anybody. And so it, becomes to become, it starts to become very, very discouraging. Or the people that are out in college, one by one, they have a professor that says something really nasty or really messed up or really discouraging. And so they be, begin to think, has God forgotten about me? 
Well, he wants to remind them that they are pilgrims. What does the word pilgrim mean? It's, it means one who is a temporary resident in a foreign place. Or another translation is those who reside as aliens. In other words, Peter was reminding the people that they are aliens on earth and citizens of heaven. Aliens on earth and citizens of heaven. This place is in your home. And so we should expect not to always be comfortable because you don't belong here. And one of the troubles of sleeping over your friend's house all the time is what? When you start to make yourself comfortable, too comfortable, and then their parents get mad at you. Like, you don't live here. You don't pay rent. You steal all our food. Our refrigerator has nothing in it because of you. Get out. You're an alien. And in the same way, not the exact same way, obviously, these people were aliens on earth and citizens of heaven. It should make sense that we don't feel like we belong. And so as Peter reminds them in the second verse and throughout the letter, though they feel abandoned, guilty, and in bondage, actually, they have been selected, they're being sanctified, and they will soon be set free. Or they are set free. Selected, sanctified, and set free. Let's look at what he says. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's what it says in the first part of verse 2. You know, one of the parts that's so discouraging about facing anxiety, panic attacks. As many of you guys know, I've suffered through having anxiety attacks all the time. I had it for a number of years. One of the things that was really discouraging about that is it feels like there's no hope. And it feels like maybe God has forgotten about me. Because no matter how hard you pray... No matter how hard you wish and you dream of what it's like not to be anxious and not to have your brain psych you out and, and, and shut things down and you can't function, it seems like it doesn't get any better. It seems like. That's the key word. And you start to think, well, if I'm still suffering in the exact same way, could it be the case that God has forgotten about me? Perhaps you are depressed. And as you're anxious and as you're depressed, you, you start to feel like if I'm always sad every day, could it be the case that God has forgotten about me? But God wanted to encourage these people that were dispersed, as Peter reminds them, that they are actually selected by God. Elected. Selected. If you have a 2,000-piece puzzle and you're putting it together with all of your family, and you lay it out on the table, and you're putting it together piece by piece by piece, and it takes you in like weeks of just getting down together with your family and putting those pieces together, and you have 1,999 pieces of that puzzle put together. Do you look at your family and say, oh, man, that's, that's good enough. Let's walk away. You would actually, it would drive you insane. Where is that missing piece? It would drive you insane because you want the puzzle to be complete. It's not enough that there's 1,999 pieces in place. You can't, you can't help but focus on the one that's missing. Did you know that the Bible says that Jesus leaves the 99 sheep to chase after the one that's lost? If a man loses a coin in his house, won't he search the entire house to find that lost coin? You see, it doesn't matter how many people there are in this youth group, how many Christians there are in the world, if you are missing in the family of God, don't you think God cares? And don't you think that God knows? 
Don't you think we hurt? If you decide that I'm just going to go off and do my own thing and forget everybody else, I want to live my life the way that I want to, don't you, don't you think that people do miss you and do realize that? I can't even tell you how many nights it just bothers me because I'm always thinking, who are we missing? And listen, if you're just going to another youth group or you're plugged in in another church, that's awesome. We want you there. That's great. But if you're a person who's hurting and you've left just because you feel no one cares, you need to know that you have actually been selected, handpicked, chosen by God. And you have a purpose and you have a calling on your life. The word elect just means chosen. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 15, God says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says. Even if a mother could forget about her nursing child, just leave her baby and completely forget she even has a baby which would be unnatural. He says, even if that were possible, I will not forget you. Think about this. Does an artist who wants to create a work of art select their instruments arbitrarily? In other words, do they just take whatever instruments in front of them? No. When they create a painting, when they create a piece of art, they handpicked each instrument they're going to use. Charcoal oil paints, whatever it is, so that they can create this work of art that they have planned. It's the same way with God. If, if God has chosen you, elected you, it's not because you are the waste of the universe and God's got nothing else to do with his time, so he uses whatever remains, but he has actually chosen you for a specific purpose. So the Greek word for elect means picked out, chosen. And some people get scared when they hear the word elect and foreknowledge. And so you'll have this thing called Calvinism where people think that elect means that God chooses some people to go to heaven and thereby that means that God chooses some people to go to hell, which can be really scary. They think that God actually wants some people to burn for eternity in hell. It's kind of like if you're walking by a lake and you see some children drowning by the lake and there's a sign that says don't swim in the lake, so they should have known better. They're swimming in the lake, and they're dying. There's a farmer walking by. He sees it and says, oh, these kids have disobeyed my law. I'm going to pick one out and let the other one drown. And then we're looking, we're looking at the farmer saying, isn't it nice that the farmer saved one of them even though they didn't deserve it? That is not what it means to be chosen and elect. Regarding foreknowledge, often what people think is, God knows the future, and because he knows the future, everything is set in stone, including your free choices. And so if God knows what you're going to do tomorrow, you have no choice over what you're going to do tomorrow. So it's locked in. So if you're going to sin in the future, it's locked in, and you can't help it. And so people get discouraged when they, they hear these things. And so what happens is a lot of these Calvinists that believe that, and listen, they're in the family of God. We love them too. But when they hear that, sometimes Calvinists will hijack Biblical terms like election, predestination, foreknowledge. And then they'll say things like, you don't believe in the doctrine of election? You don't believe in predestination? But they're defining it in their own subtle way. So then we'll be like, oh, well, I don't believe in predestination. Talking about what they define as predestination. And they'll say, well, you don't believe in the Bible. Because it says right there, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now what do you do with that? Well, no. 
there is actually things that, that really are important to understand when it comes to these doctrines. Norman Geisler, who's a theologian, says this, that God never predestines anyone contrary to their free will, but elects only those he foreknew would accept his saving grace. So in other words, when God chooses you, that's because it's according to his foreknowledge of what? The foreknowledge that you would choose him. So it's not forcing you to do anything against your will. It's knowing that you're making a choice, he chooses you first. If there's a guy who has an opportunity to get married, and he has two women that he loves equally, hypothetical scenario, okay, this is completely hypothetical, loves two women equally, and somehow, in his foreknowledge, knowledge of the future, knows that one will say yes and the other will say no. He asks the one to marry him, the one he knows will say yes. Does that mean that her yes was forced? Or does that mean that she, was, she had no control over her decision? No, it means that he chose the one he knew would say yes. I do it all the time. I only ask girls out on a date that I know will say yes because I don't want to be rejected again. I'm kidding. It's a joke. I don't ask anybody out on dates ever. Another example would be if you were watching a replay with your friends. Let's say that you're watching the World Series from last year and you're watching... You already knew what happened, but your friend's never seen baseball in his life. And so you're saying, like, oh, he's going to swing the bat there, and he's going to hit a home run here. And your friend's like, oh, my gosh, you must be controlling these people. No, he just knows what's going to happen. But just because he knows what's going to happen doesn't have any bearing on whether or not these people are freely making their decisions. So that being said, have you ever thought about what it must have been like to hear Jesus tell Peter that Peter would deny Jesus. Can you imagine, since God does know the future and knows your free choices, wouldn't it be kind of weird to hear, imagine talking to Jesus. And Jesus says to you, hey, listen, I love you, but you're going to deny me in front of everybody three times tonight. Good luck. Um, what do you do? You tell Jesus, you're wrong, Jesus. It's not going to happen. He's God. He's always right. So does that mean that you're forced to deny him? Put yourself in Peter's shoes. How, how would that have felt? That you don't have free will. Now you're stuck. Now you have to deny Jesus. Does that mean that Jesus is like forcing him to deny him? It just, this whole thing just gets really, really confusing until you realize that the fact of the matter is that Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And so when Peter says, I would never deny you, Peter is working on the the background information that he's always a good person and he'll never fail. When Jesus knew the situations in which Peter would fail. You know, I, I can have self-confidence. I can have pride. But I don't know where the areas could be where I would fail, where I would fall. I don't know what situation would come about. Hopefully it wouldn't be like a situation where someone's coming up to me and says, Hey man, I'm going to give you a bag of drugs. Here you go. And then I'm going to start doing drugs. I don't think that's going to happen. But God knows the instances in which I could fail. And this is where we can be encouraged by the doctrine of election and foreknowledge. Because since God knows what you're going to do in the future, he can protect you in the future. In fact, that's exactly what God does. God sovereignly works anticipating our future failures. Because you see in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, 
that your, your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So it's kind of like this. Let's say that um, there's a, a father who's teaching his son how to ride a bike. And in his foreknowledge, he knows his son is going to fall off that bike as he begins to ride. And because of that, he plans ahead that he will catch him when he does fall. Your heavenly father knows where you will fail. And because of that, he can anticipate your future failures and work sovereignly to protect you. So this is where a correct understanding of the doctrine of election can actually encourage us, not discourage us. Secondly, this is the other thing that he can encourage us in. It's our responsibility to commit ourselves to God, and it's his responsibility to keep us. Because think about it. If you didn't believe that God chooses you, then what? You could lose your salvation. I guess it could be the case that you're living your life and, and you don't know. Maybe you're saved, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're going to stay saved, but who knows? You see, it could be really, really distracting. It could be really, really discouraging. Because as you live your life, let's say that you commit a big sin and you stumble and you fall. What now? Could it be the case that you'd never come back to the Lord? Well, no, because the Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, it's God who gives eternal life. And if he gives you eternal life, and he's in your hand, no one is strong enough to, to rip you from his grip. So that's where we can have the confidence. Thirdly and finally, regarding the doctrine of election, it says, or my notes say, not it says, since God knows our future, we can be confident that he's preparing us for our future. And that's what he does with the disciples all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, is he says, these things I've said to you so that you would not be made to stumble. And he warns them about the future. It's going to get intense. It's going to be hard. But don't worry. I will be with you. God is always preparing us for our future if we're willing to be trusting in him. The second thing it says, and we're going a little bit faster here, is in sanctification of the spirit in verse 2. Sanctification, what does that mean? It just basically means purification. That you're being made more and more like Jesus. And you see, here you have the work of the Trinity. The Father elects, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Son, by his blood, gives you the power to obey. And so, sanctification is all about becoming more and more like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to bear the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? You guys know. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And self-control. All those things are made possible by the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, it's impossible to do the works of the Spirit. In other words, you're only going to obey God or do His commands or do whatever His laws dictate if it helps you out. And isn't that kind of the mentality of our world today? Is do whatever feels good, whatever benefits you, whatever makes you happy. Well, the difficulty with that is, what if my happiness costs somebody else their happiness? What if I'm happy when you're sad? What if I'm happy when you're not around? You see, whereas the world says, do what makes you happy, the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
The Bible completely reverses it. And what you realize is it's impossible to serve other people without having some selfish motive in it. And people debate with this and be like, oh, no, I do things for the poor and I don't care. But you do it because it makes you feel good. Whereas the Bible calls us to die to ourselves, which is only possible if we have someone else living inside of us, Jesus and his Holy Spirit. As the Spirit sanctifies, we become more and more like our maker. If you flip over to chapter 2, verse 9, it says this. You can just flip the page. It says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. You see, the Holy Spirit enables you to be people that are so countercultural. If you really want to be a rebel in this life, follow the Lord, because everything he calls us to do is completely against the mentality of this world. It's contrary. It won't be the things that you naturally want to do. But as God selects you, you start to stand out in this wicked generation as people that truly have a living hope, because our hope is the living person of Jesus Christ. And by his living hope, we can truly put death to despair, because since despair means living without hope, we can have someone who teaches us all things and guides us because God himself is living inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete in the Greek, which is our advocate, the helper. Wayne Grudem, who's a commentator, says this, The unseen, unheard activity of God's Holy Spirit surrounds them almost like a spiritual atmosphere in which they live and breathe, churning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for his patient, sanctifying work. I just love how that's said. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit, it's like you're never truly alone. Anywhere that you go is an opportunity for God to use you and to see his power in your life. And even in the midst of suffering, you can see him turn sorrow into joy if you're willing to submit to his sanctification and allow him to change your life. The last thing in being selected, sanctified, now we are set free. For what? It says in the latter part of the verse, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Spirit gives us power to obey God's commands. Which is interesting, isn't it? The Spirit gives us power to obey God's commands. But isn't, isn't it true that there are certain sins that it seems impossible to shake off? Doesn't it seem the case that there are particular sins that we always seem to struggle with? Maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with lust for a really long time. Or maybe you've just been trying to set good habits and it's never happened. You try to read your Bible, try to pray, it just never happens. And you, it feels like you're in bondage to sin. It doesn't feel like you're free. It feels the opposite of freedom. And no matter how many times you try to fight this particular sin and try to free yourself of the sin, you always, always fall short. And so you become even more discouraged because you think, am I even saved? And you start praying the sinner's prayer a billion times. You go on retreats, you raise your hand to receive the Lord, and it seems like you always, fall yourself, you always fall back into the same place where you were. So the question is, if we genuinely wish to do good, why is it that we aren't capable of doing good? 
Isn't God working in us? Where is free will? If we feel in bondage, why is that? It doesn't feel like someone else is stealing our body and and forcing us to do things we don't want to do. And in fact, the most scary thing is it feels natural. It feels natural to sin, to do the wrong thing. So what gives? Why is it that we constantly find ourselves in this place? Well, this once again is where election and understanding election gives us confidence. Jesus says in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. The fruit he said, he's talking about there is the fruit of obedience, along with joy and other things. But the ability to obey God's laws is actually the responsibility of God and his empowering. See, oftentimes we got this backwards. We think that church is about behavior modification. You come here, you feel bad about certain things, you leave and you're trying to like fix your behavior. That's absolutely contrary to what God wants you to see and wants you to do with your life. So let me get this straight. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do good things, but we're going about it completely the wrong way. Because what happens here is you, go, you come here and like, all right, I'm going to read my Bible. All right, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to stop doing those terrible things. I'm going to stop gossiping. I'm going to stop getting angry. And, and then you leave here and then it happens again. Like, all right, next week I'm going to try really hard. I'm not going to do those things anymore. And it seems like you're always falling into sin again. So what gives? Well, the problem is you need to be born again. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. Nicodemus comes up to him, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And, and he's like, but so what do I have to do? I have to crawl back into my mom's womb? And he's like, stop. That's weird. Don't say that ever again. Because Nicodemus still thought there were things he had to do. So, so I, I'm supposed to be born again. So how do I do that? It's not about what you do. Being born is something that you didn't choose. It happens to you. I was just born one day. I didn't like planets. Before I existed, I did not talk to my parents and like I was not in heaven somewhere existing. And they came down to my parents and said, really should, like I should be born on July 16th, 1988. What do you think, guys? I didn't exist. I couldn't make that decision. It happened. So being born again, once again, is the father's doing, not your doing. So then that, so what you're saying, I don't have to do anything? You don't have to do anything. So then, but if I'm struggling, shouldn't I do something? Well, yes, but this is where it comes to back, back again. Your responsibility is to commit to choose him, and it's his responsibility to keep you. So very simply this. If you're worried, well, am I chosen? Do I know if I'm chosen? Choose God. Well, I don't want to choose God. Then you're probably not chosen. But I want to choose God. Then choose God. If you choose God, then he's chosen you. It's almost like you plan to walk into a building. You're walking into an office building, and you see a door, and you walk in, and there's a giant party in this room. You're like, wow, what's all this stuff for? And why is this giant party? And there's all these people here. And then you look at the back of the door, it says chosen before the foundations of the world. See, God knows the decisions that you're going to make, but you still have the responsibility to choose him and let him do the work. Also in the book of John, it talks about the guy who was paralyzed for over 30 years at the pool of Bethesda. You know the story, we went through it in the Leap of the Dark series, but I'll remind you because you weren't here. Paralyzed man sitting at the pool of Bethesda because there was a rumor going around that an angel would 
stir up these waters in this pool, and whoever got in first got healed. That's messed up. Most people think it probably wasn't true. It's probably a rumor. But can you imagine if that was true? Here's a crippled guy who's laying on the side of the road, waiting in line to jump into the pool to get first, but he can't even walk. So he's there for over 30 years because he tries to get in first, but he has no one to pick him up and throw him into the pool to get healed. It's a picture of what religion is. Religion says, do your best, get in first, be everybody else, be perfect. And by the way, you can't walk. But faith in Jesus says, it's not about what you do, because Jesus came to the paralyzed man and asked him, do you want to be made well? And then he said, rise, take up your mat and walk. You see, religion is about what you do to be first, to do your thing and do your best and Maybe you'll be accepted, whereas faith in God is about Jesus coming to you and doing the work. So if you feel desperate, guess what? There's good news. It probably means that you need saving. All you're really saying is, I need to be saved. Yes, you need to be saved. And if you ask him to come in your life and change your life, he will do it. Andrew Murray, who is an author, said this. What can be the reason that we see a thing is wrong and strive against it and we can't conquer it? What can be the reason that we have a hundred times prayed and vowed, and yet here we are still living a mingled, divided, half-hearted life? To those two questions, there is one answer. It is self that is the root of the whole trouble. And therefore, if anyone asks me, how can I get rid of this compromised life? The answer would not be, you, you must do this or do that or the other thing. But the answer would be, a new life from above, the life of Christ, must take the place of the self-life. Then alone can, can we be conquerors. A lot of times what people do is they try to do all the works of the Spirit by the power of the flesh. In other words, you try to love people in your own strength. And so what happens is I will love them as long as they don't hurt me or as long as they love me back. And when they don't, you do something really nice for somebody else. And they don't even say thank you. You walk away bitter. It's, it's bitter and you just tell them. You, you can't help but be mad at the person because they should be grateful for what you've done. But doing works by the Spirit means that you don't expect people to behave in a way that you've treated them because it's all about you just sharing the love because you've received all the love from Jesus. You've, you've received a true fulfilling love. You want to know why the world can't love like the church can love? If they're filled with the Spirit. It's because the world hasn't received fulfillment from the person who can, can fulfill them. So everything they give is for a reason. Whereas we can give because Jesus has done something first. We love him because he first loved us. So that being said, it comes down to oftentimes people are trying to walk when they have to first sit. Allow God to do the work. It's almost as if if you have a chair and I'm sitting down on a chair. I'm putting all of my weight in the chair. And the chair is the thing that's holding me. You need to rest and let God push you, let God drive you before you can fulfill his commands. All that being said, many people, I think, feel like a tainted Gatorade bottle. What do I mean by that? Ever drank a Gatorade bottle and you empty it out or you finish the bottle and you try to fill it up with water? No matter how many times you wash the thing, it still tastes like Gatorade. And so many people live their lives trying to refill that bottle and still they have the same residue of sin. When God is saying, 
you need to throw out that bottle and get a new bottle and let your, your life be filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you have not entered that life, good news. That life is possible for you. Because the difficulty is when you're struggling with sin, you look at everybody else and you assume that everybody else is just like you. If I haven't overcome, then probably everybody else is just faking it. But that simply is not true. You can have a new life if you place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Also what I love, in conclusion, is how he says, not just for obedience, but for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What in the world does that mean? Well, we find out that he's pointing to Leviticus chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Where it's talking about the ceremony of purification for people that are lepers. In other words, when you were a leper, you weren't cut off from the family of God. You were still associated as the people of God. But we know leprosy was this disease that ate you from the inside out. You couldn't feel things anymore. So you put your hand in the fire and your hand would disintegrate. Rodents would chew on your feet and, and you'd have all kinds of different things. And you would have no feeling. And so leprosy was highly contagious. And although you still were considered a person in the family of God, you were still considered a Jew, you had to be an outcast. You were cut off from all fellowship. And so they would have to go everywhere and shout, unclean, 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 to let people know that a contagious person was walking by. It's a picture of sin. How a person can be saved, can be walking, uh, you know, not necessarily walking in the Christian life, but can be numbered among the people of God, but be cut off from fellowship because they still have things that are still fostering your life. Cut off from fellowship with God, cut off from fellowship with his people because they still have the leprosy inside of them. Oftentimes, we think about this and we don't understand what it means to really live an abundant, clean life. And so there is a ceremony in Leviticus chapter 14 of purification, where if a person who was a leper was healed and was brought back into fellowship, they sprinkled him with innocent blood. It's one of the only times you have sprinkling on a person himself. Sprinkle him seven times with this blood to show everybody else that he was now ceremonially clean. This is a picture for those of us that realize once you know that you have been chosen by God, and you have the power through sanctification of the spirit. And you have the freedom to obey. Even when you fall short, his blood cleans and restores and purifies the patches of you that are still unclean. You do your best. You have the power to obey. And even when you fall short, his grace still covers you. I like to think about it like this. If you have a patch of sin on your life, even after obeying, and you start to feel discouraged, you can say, it's just another place where I need God's grace. In other words, you don't have to let Satan condemn you and say you're a loser, you're pathetic, you call yourself a Christian, because it's, once again, I've been chosen by God, and now I have the freedom to obey, and even when I fail, it's just another place where I need God's grace. Maybe you've been taking a step of faith, and you feel all alone. And you're in a different place. There's a, there'll come a day when you're dispersed. If the persecution hasn't started today, it's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen at some point in time when you are suffering. And when you're in that place where you don't see anybody else around you to encourage you. When you don't see a lot of people responding to the gospel. You share with your teachers. You share with your friends who aren't Christian. And it seems like no one's responding to the gospel. You can once again say, this is just another place 
where I need God's grace. Maybe one of the most encouraging things ever. Because it changes your perspective. Instead of thinking that I need to be perfect, now it's about I need God's grace every single day. No matter what today holds, I know that even if I fail, even if I don't measure the standard God has for me, that's okay because God's grace covers it all. And I know that he loves me still. Bow your heads with me right now as we pray.